Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's groundbreaking book, In This Together, landed on bookstore shelves with a powerful message. When we work together, we can do absolutely anything. Guidance from 40 women leaders with specific strategies to help women advance their careers makes In This Together even more relevant today, especially with the pandemic's impact on women in the workforce. Take your career to the next level with Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's In This Together, now available on audiobook. Download your copy today. If you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go with a group. Folks, this podcast is brought to you by the Real Leaders Impact Collaborative, our once-a-month virtual impact CEO peer groups who meet to support each other with whatever is keeping them up at night. I joined the group back in September, and if I had to say the one major takeaway that I've received is that to not let things outside business affect your on-court performance. This little change has certainly reflected in our business growth and development. And when our members do well, more lives are transformed. That's what impact is all about. So if you're interested, please email us at info at real-leaders.com. Just say the podcast sent you and you want to speak to someone about the impact collaborative. Again, that's info at real hyphen leaders.com enjoy the show yeah let's go right, let's get this show let's go surfing here here we go now in five four three two and one and welcome everyone to this episode of the real leaders podcast i'm your host kevin edwards joining us today folks is an inspirationalist john register john thanks for being with us today Hey, Kevin, so excited to be on your show today. Wow, thanks for, for having me on the show and to talk to your audience. Real leaders, can't wait. Let's jump in on this conversation. That's right, John. We're keeping it real here on the show today, folks. And John, you, you, get, you have quite the background. And for those listening out there who don't know about your experience in the Gulf War, who don't know about your experience as an athlete uh, in college, uh, post-college, uh, who, who don't know the real John Register, if you had a book to give them, where would you start in chapter one? Yeah, all of us, I think, when we're talking even in leadership, right, is that there we do have an origin and we just don't come into leadership. And for me, it really started with three individuals who I don't know if they were, if I would have called them leaders in my earlier life, when I was growing up in Oak Park, Illinois, on the west side of Chicago, west side, what's up? Um, but you know, the my father, my mother, and my uncle were three catalytic people that I just absorbed so much from, not knowing that how much I was absorbing as I was a child growing up. So my father jailed in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, for voter registration. And most people think, oh, it was the right for African-Americans to vote. No, that actually happened with the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. But the, the, the crust of it was uh, those in power didn't want African-Americans to vote. So that's why it took until 63 to get it on the rolls in the books. In fact, you know, he when he was jailed there, he was with nine other white clergy members. And I found this article later on. The amazing thing about this, Kevin, is 
when you look at the time span after that had happened, the judge that sentenced him to that jail time and when he died, when he expired, um, was replaced by an African-American woman who wanted to give him a black. So we see how things actually can shift and can work mm. for the best person, for the best role, for the best job. Uh, so that was one. My uncle, Uncle Gloucester, when you look at the National Museum of, of African-American History in Washington, D.C., uh, he was the one that was the in charge of the national ex, of the the executive director of the national um, uh, branches for the national of uh, the the NAACP National Advancement for Associate of Colored People right and he's the last person to see Medgar Evers alive the one who was who was uh, slain slain civil rights leader back down in Mississippi also right to vote um, and he was in charge of all the platform speakers on the March on Washington so as I'm looking at his house and I'm noticing hey what's this office you're in, like the Oval Office? <laughs> they were the ones that were, you know, the young ones that were really trying to make the inroads. Can we get housing right? Can we get education right? Um, all these things that uh, African-Americans were left off the table with, and can, can, they were the, the, the fighters. And then my mother, the educator, the consummate educator, uh, was in Oak Park, Illinois. And when they moved in, you know, I remember this, uh, 1972, the welcome wagon threw a brick through the front window, right? That's how they came up. But they stayed to shift and change perceptions. So when she just passes away back in, on, uh, you know, a couple months ago, uh, the people that came out to support her were sharing all of these amazing stories of which, how she shifted Oak Park's total concept and mindset. And so those those stories, they resonate with me now on like, man, John, what are you really doing? Are you really creating the change? Are you educating yourself to the degree where you're not listening to other individuals that might not have gone as deep as you're going or societal impacts? And can you have the courage to actually advance forward in a thought or an idea that not serves myself, but serves others? And, I, and so those are the three individuals I think that really poured into my life in such a way that that kind of creates who I am right now. And, and where are you trying to go with this? What is the message you want to get out there? What's the end result? If you were to say, hey, I'm going to exit today. What's the yeah, I, I think the, you know, Cameron, I think the biggest message, right, is we 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 have this kind of fear and not just fear for fear's sake, right? It's not I'm just saying that fear. Um, and we'll get into the story, my storyline. But we have this fear but we don't go deep enough in what that fear actually um, manifests itself in. So, you know, when I had my amputation, you know, I was fearful my wife was gonna leave me. Well, that really wasn't my fear. My fear was, am I still desirable? Am I, do I still have a sense, do I, do I still belong? Am I still part of a community? And that question right there is what I believe a lot of leaders struggle with, uh, whether it shows up as imposter syndrome. And the second piece of that, which we'll talk a little bit more about is, is other people, other individuals who believe for us what we can or cannot do, which is based upon what they believe they could or could not do if they were in our situation. And the third one is society. Who have I listened to in society that's directing my fears in the first place? 
was, you know, um, all these things, I think they, they, they push into us, into our space. And we kind of before the show, we we're talking about these military service members. And when I was building the, the program, the Army's world-class athlete program, uh, and then switching over to the, the Paralympic military sport program, which I founded uh, back in uh, 19, uh, in 2004, when the, when the first Iraq, when the, when the Iraq war was coming up, um, and going down to Brook Army Medical Center, we say in society, thank you for your service. And then when that person comes home and they're burned over 90% of their body, male or female, and they get discharged from the hospital and they're across from their loved ones for the first time and their children around the table looking at the scars that are on their face. Mm. And we're telling them as society that, you know what, your scars really make you look like Freddy Krueger. Mm. You're the nightmare on Elm Street. You're who what shows up in your children's dreams and scares your children. And that's why we take them down a different aisle. We don't want to talk about that. But yet we'll say in a blink of an eye, thank you for your service. Mm. What's our responsibility? to the end state of why we do what we do and those thank you things. It can't be a, a happenstance statement. What do we do with Hollywood that, that puts people who, who are disfigured as the villain, hmm. either physically scarred or with a mental disability? Hmm. And then we're afraid of them. And because we've listened then in that society. So what I hope to really get across is can we have the courage when we know something to be wrong to step in and correct, mm. at least have that courage. And when our truth is what I always say, it's my mantra is on my LinkedIn page. When my, when my truth outweighs my fear, I will commit to a courageous life. I'll commit to courageous acts. Well, well certainly you had an act of courage by joining the military in yeah. the first place. Right. I mean, what it seems like you're talking about, like a promise, you know, that wasn't really fully, you know, committed or, or, or finished when a lot of these people come back. And that promise of becoming, um, mm -hmm. you know, part of the military w was something that was attractive to you. And you left to go serve. Take us to chapter two or three in your life and let's let's work toward the end. So that's, that's funny you say that, Kevin. I, I always laugh because when, when we say thank you for your service and all this stuff, most people that I've encountered, they go on for very personal, selfish reasons. And I was no different than anyone else. Uh, after running track and field for the University of Arkansas for four years and earning, you know, four All-American honors and, you know, having a, a national championship every, every year I was there, uh, I decided instead of going into radio and television program and production, which I got my degree in and do a television station down in Mississippi, I decided to go into the military because they had this world-class athlete program. So I joined the military as a means to an end to try to make the Olympic team. Mm. And I made the program, the world-class athlete program on my way to Presidio, San Francisco. I loved the military because when I went across the parade field at Fort Jackson, South Carolina, it hit me. I got it. And I think this is what happens to many mil military service members. Mm. We think of the men and women who have walked across that parade field, have saluted that press box, and we understand the legacy and the heritage that's gone before us to protect our freedoms against you know, the Constitution of America and against all enemies foreign and domestic, right? So we're protecting the Constitution and all enemies foreign and domestic. And that's a, that's a grave thing once you begin to understand that. Mm -hmm. So when Operation Desert Storm Desert Shield came up, 
I was on my way to, to um, Presidio, I was diverted from that assignment to the world-class athlete program and spent six months in the sandbox. Uh, and it was an amazing experience. I mean, you know, I, I wouldn't want to do it again, but it was, it was really, it helped me understand kind of the, a, polit, a political structure, uh, a, 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 an operations structure, uh, and it really gave me an insight in how to, to show up empathetically for individuals, for people. Uh, and how do we do that? You know, one of the you know, quick little story, side story is uh, I was on guard duty because I was enlisted and I was going to officer candidate school later on. I kind of kept them in my back pocket after taking a, a officer selection battery test, wanted to do 20, 20 years in the military. I'm on guard duty at the same compound, Saudi Arabia National Guard compound. And, and I'm with other Saudi guards and we're, you know, doing our, our guard duty. So I bought a, a little book in uh, and, and Arabic's called Kitab. So book, right? If it make it possessive, you put an I on the end, it's pronounced E, Kitabi, my book. So I have my little Arabic book and I'm kind of reading it and trying to go with the, the guards and, and help me with the Arabic words. And so I got good enough to where I was actually knew about 20 words and 20 kind of greetings and colloquialism, thank yous and all these things. Um, and a car pulls up. And everybody just jumps and goes crazy, like straight to attention, everything. And I don't know, I got my hand on my, <laughs> on my, on my weapon because sure. I don't know what's about to jump off here. Uh, but my, my friend Fala, he says to me, no, 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 it's, it's a prince. It's one of the princes. I said, oh, okay, got it. So, I, so he, everybody lines up. I just jumped in line too, right, as an American. And as they walk down the aisle, and it, he's kind of the prince is shaking everybody's hand and doing their, their greetings, uh, you know, thanking them for being on, on, on post. He comes to me and he's about to pass me by because I'm the American, I'm the American uniform. So he's going to go to the next person that's over here. So I say, Salam Aleikum. He's like, oh, Walaikum Salam, right? And I said, yeah, Kevhala. Oh, quiz, quiz, quiz. And he's like, you can see he's just lighting up because someone took the time to speak and understand a little bit of the language in order to build a connection. And so the leadership lesson in here is to really begin, if we're going to, with our clients, with our customer base, understand and walk a mile in the shoes of someone else. I mean, I didn't know who, who these folks were. I didn't, I hadn't been that part of the country before. All I heard was, was the, the societal impacts of what I heard on the media. But this was a different experience because I was on the actual ground talking, breaking bread. After he left, I mean, he, he, gave the big hug, the kiss and everything. And off he was gone. I was like, wow, I could do no wrong in those Saudis eyes. They invited me out to dinner. We're eating meals with our hands right there. A very, uh, when, when we think about inviting people over to dinner in that part of the country, that is a high level of trust. And I see you and I embrace you as my brother, in my case. And so that taught me Every time I go out now, just to try to learn a little bit of somebody else's custom and culture, not because I'm trying to get an inroad someplace, because I really authentically want to know who you are. Hmm. How do you tick? You know, how do, what do we have in common in our colloquialisms and how we share and talk and break bread and, and just lean back and just relax? And I didn't speak a lot of Arabic. They didn't speak a lot of English, but we had a commonality of of brotherly love for each, each other. And I think that always wins the day when, because that is a language you can't, it can't be taught. You have to engage with it and lead with the empathetic side of, of seeing somebody else first. 
Well, how about also a mindset of constant learning? I mean, you're constantly trying to learn a new language and it just happened to come through at the right time. When we think about people who go nine to five and Mm -hmm. once that clock hits, they're done. They're watching (laughs) Netflix. They're not trying to constantly learn. They're not trying to try to pick up a book. It is a nine to five job. What are your thoughts on success and trying to have an open mind for all types of situations? Yeah, that's that's good. Um, you know, the the open mind comes with learning and the the, the reading and and kind of filling yourself with with other thoughts and ideas. So I, I used to kind of go with you know kind of right and left and kind of get that kind of different perspectives. But as talking heads became you know more entertainment than actual news and value. I started looking outside of the United States to get my information to see what other people were saying because it's, it's not filtered with a bias, at least not the bias that we have here in the United States. Right. So I'll listen to uh, a, a, a station, an American station that's in, in Japan, or I'll listen to uh, the BBC World, right? Uh, those oh, stations, I, I, I get a, a different uh, mindset and what people are saying, and I get it through a global lens um, and so that's kind of one of the things I think when it comes to learning uh, after <laughs> I go back you know, I was having, I was really struggling getting back into the, the rhythm of work and trying to be, you know, reaching out and, and being authentic, you know, trying to get, you know, speaking opportunities. And as I sat down, I was like, you know, how do I get back? How to get the engine back on again? And I came, uh, I, I was given this kind of acronym. I think God gave me this acronym. It's called smear. You just got to smear it. Right. <laughs> So SMIRP stands for sales, marketing, education, exercise, uh, and then you have um, what's the, uh, uh, research and the, 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 the then preparation, right? So all those things kind of you got to SMIRP it. That's why SMIRP it register SMIRP it, and the education piece and the research piece I think is where when you're talking about those that just kind of come home off the nine to five they stop. Many people in a profession, any profession, if you're not reading just Maybe I don't even care if it's 15, 20 minutes, something that's in your profession, you're just stalling. Uh, you're just you're just camping out. The ones that actually accelerate, they might read one article or do one thing to educate themselves in the field that they are in. When I was going through the military and basic training, I had a drill sergeant say, hey, when you get to AIT, do a correspondence course right along with the, with the job that you're doing. So I was a, a rat rigger, radio and teletype guy, and I bought the, uh, not bought, but sent away for the correspondence course for radio and teletype. And as I was going through the course, I filled out the book. So at the end of it, I not only had the, the course done, but I had this book done that actually earned me more points so I could advance and rank. Hmm. So I think that's the, the thing that people don't understand. And he said it to everybody. He just didn't say it to me, but who took advantage of it? Right. The resources there. And when you see other people elevate, is that because they've done more work and they've done the research or are you, are you just kind of camping out? And, you know, let's, let's talk, you know, it's not really about the hard work sometimes, you know, so that's another whole, you know, when you're talking about with, with leaders, we're, we're talking about ideas that kind of com- buck conventional wisdom. And when we're bucking conventional wisdom, people always say, it's just, you got to work harder, you got to work harder. But tell me, Kevin, have you seen anybody that didn't work hard and got promoted? Have you ever seen anybody that uh, worked really hard and got promoted? Have you ever seen anybody that that was totally lazy and, and failed or totally lazy and succeeded? 
So you see there's this, you know, all these four quadrants and, it, and some people, if they work real hard, they never make it out because if it doesn't come with the opportunity, then you can, you can get all the education. You can get every single, you can check all the boxes. Take for example, the Tuskegee Airmen, talking about the greatest of the greatest generation. So they're saving pilots, kind of Southern pilots who are not going to appreciate them when they come back to the United States. So the, the kind of the Southern pilots, white pilots get all of the GI bill and all those things coming back. The African-Americans got nothing. In fact, three, you know, we have three cases that they were lynched in military uniform when they got back to the United States. So thank you for your service. Here's a rope, right? So how do we show up in those moments? The mm -hmm. question is not, because that's a past thing, right? That's happened. But how do we show up now mm. when we see the government has, you know, at, at some point had, you know, the, the, you know, in the 60s and 70s said that only certain people could live in certain neighborhoods. So I began selling to those people of one group in this area, the most prime property, but I can't advance even if I have the degree, but because of the color of my skin, I got to be over here. Mm. So it's opportunities that we need to allow for everybody. And, and, and what I see, you know, a lot of times I'm having a conversation with another group coming up uh, is executives will say, you know, we're talking about DE&I, uh, execs will always say, well, we just want, we don't want to make sure the talent, we want to make sure the talent stays high. Well, why don't you, why don't we ever think that the talent is always going to be high if we just open up the opportunity for folks? When they say to me, well, we just can't find, you know, you know, the women or, you know, African-Americans, Hispanic, whatever the widget you want to put in there, uh, I say that if you can't find the talent, then you don't have the talent on your team to find the talent. Hmm. You, you need other talent to find the talent sure. because you're, 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 you're shooting yourself in the foot. Sure. Um, there is a statistic that came out by Accenture. Uh, Accenture did in 2018 Q4, uh, and it was called the, the, the Disability Advantage. Um, and this report said, I'll, I'll shorten it down, um, that if you have two alike companies, let's just put two, you know, two opposing, let's say, let's say Burger King and McDonald's. Right. Company, company A, say Burger King, um, hires, retains, and promotes people with disabilities. Company B, say McDonald's, uh, does not. Company A actually outperforms company B two to one to shareholder returns. Hmm. This caused the comptroller of New York State, Tom DiNapoli, to say, I want to start investing the trillions of dollars I have in pension funds for New Yorkers in company A's and not company B's. And he didn't say that in Washington, D.C. He said it at the New York Stock Exchange, NYSE, hmm. with Voya, who was the one that the principal in the room. And then you had Accenture that was there and all these other companies. You could have heard a pin drop hmm. when they were talking about people with disabilities. We've had this great resignation. Where are all the employees? Have we even considered the 15% of the population that has a disability that is wants to work, can work, and already called this whole shift going home, saying, I can work from home. We all said, no, you got to come into the office. And guess what? We're all working from home right now. So, um, so let's think about it from a different place because you know we have to buck the conventional wisdom of what we've been taught. And that's where I think leadership has to advanced to i think it's going that place you know actually it's yeah. funny you said that. i spoke to a ceo yesterday in singapore who that's his business he had he he outsources disability disabilitated workers to the united states for people who want to pay a quarter to the dollar for quality work yeah yeah he was working in finance his whole life and he came across to people in disability says wow their computer skills are phenomenal 
Absolutely. <laughs> you know, and so it's just like we just don't know. We don't have. We need more people. We need more um, education on just what is going on. But I want to go back to the point you're talking about, and I think the quote is. Hard work beats talent when talent fails to work hard. And when you would say, hey, you don't have the talent in your company to find the talent that's outside, I think what you're really saying, too, is you don't have the awareness in your company to find hard workers. That's and right. I'm also, what I think, and maybe you'd agree with me on this, when you're reading that book, it's the environment that caused you to read that book. You don't want to be this American who doesn't understand that you know the other terms and cultures and norms and language. And if you're going to be in some type of environment, you've got to push yourself to form to that environment and achieve higher mm -hmm. in that environment. What does the environment have to do when it comes to pushing yourself and hard work? Do you make the environment harder for yourself? No, I think the environment's just the environment, right? So mm -hmm. environments don't shift. Environments, I mean, we have global warming, all this stuff, but you know, just just think about let's let's put in two, two um Let's just put in two two buckets, right? Okay. So let's let's say an environment of water and the environment of space. So if I am underwater or in space and I am under the water for a period of time, if I don't get back to the top, the first thing I do is I will panic. I will panic. And then I'll I'll, I'll be trying to look for anything I can to get me to the top to get air so I can survive. If a lifeguard comes up to me in that environment and approaches me from the front, I will grab onto them and two people are having a bad day. Right. <laughs> if, um, if uh, and you know, like being a surfer, right? So you're underwater, you're tumbling, tumbling, tumbling. I'm just gonna be calm, be calm, be calm. I'm eventually gonna pop up, I'm gonna pop up. I popped up, right? Uh, so, that, so that's one. Um, so lifeguards come from behind you or they give you a pole and pull you away, right? So, um, so that's one, we panic. The second environment is also in space. There is no oxygen in space. So because there's no oxygen, if, if our oxygen, we have to bring something with us into that environment. And the thing that is needed to sustain us in that environment is oxygen. So let's take it out of that context now, out of the, the, the two environments right there, right? Because let's, let's shift it to the third environment, this pandemic we, we've been all kind of going through. What was, what was, Kevin, what was the symbol? What was the, the action step we were doing to show us oxygen was out of our environment and we were beginning to panic? What was the first thing we started doing? If you remember? The first thing we started doing? Yeah. What was the craziness that said, oh my gosh, I'm panicked. Stay inside, wear a mask? Yeah, well, we, well before the mask, that was all that stuff. The first thing we did was we bought toilet paper. Oh, that's right. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and we bought food and we hoarded and we did all these things. We went to, we had runs on the market. The, the supply chain was totally disrupted because we were freaking out. In fact, I had, you know, two people, one in uh, my friend Yerlan in Kazakhstan and my, and my friend uh, in Pimdi Bumali in um, uh, Uganda. <laughs> they called, they called me on like WhatsApp and they said, uh, what is happening in the United States? What is going on? I mean, where's the resilience, you know, guys? And he says, do you all need aid? <laughs> you know, because we're always giving aid out there for those that don't know. And so now we are the ones that need the aid. So when we lose oxygen out of our environment, we panic. Mm. So we need to, as leaders, find the ways to put oxygen into any environment, you know, into our suit that we need to survive any environment that we show up in. So that we don't freak out when we get into the environment. 
because the environment's the environment. The way I show up and the way I handle it is is a matter of the oxygen I bring into that environment. That can be anything. It could be the empathy that we're talking about. It we the the ICU part of that. And also we can we can also take oxygen away, right? You can say, yeah, I see your cat in the background. I see your dog in the Zoom call. We had to go home and shift, but I and, and I see that you got to educate your children now from home because the schools are shut down. But I still need my quota of work, and I'm freaking out because. I'm trying to manage all this stuff and you still are demanding the work on me. Mm. And so, you know what I do? I check out, I'm gone, I'm done. Sure. I'm resigning, great resignation, bring it on. Mm. Right. How did I show up to help people or did I hurt people during this time? Gary Kelly, who just um, retired from Southwest Airline or shift, you know, shifted out, um, my wife works for the company and I was privileged to hear the calls. Like every other day, this guy was on the, on the phone with the entire company mm. saying, you know, a thread that ran throughout the entire theme, the, 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 his calls, we'd never laid anyone off at Southwest Airlines mm. and we're not starting now. Mm -hmm. I mean, think about that as the executive of this, um, this huge company to, to squelch the noise of all what's going to happen. Now they made some adjustments, they did some things, but they never went to that, that space. They, they, they gave early outs, they did all the other things that the other folks did, but they kept this, the core intact. And because of that, now they're paying a little bit of the price, but they'll be back sure. because um, when, in all the airlines, you know, we just, we, the news just highlights, that's why I can't stand the news a lot of times. They just highlight the, 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 the widget that's going off right now. Bing, 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 I'm gonna, let's go over there. Let's chase that ambulance. We, we, write, we don't write about airplanes taking off and airplanes landing. We write about crashes, right? And so when, when people can't get on, they're stuck and got the baby there and all this stuff. I mean, Southwest Airlines has a listening room. And here's how the listening room works. They're monitoring all of the tweets and the social media. So if they see an issue going on, they dispatch the, the, the station commander to go try to take care of the issue at the gate where that person is. So they're really very forward thinking in how they move through time and space, but everybody wants a bloody headline, mm. right? Mm. And so we can't get the good news stories that are out there because we, we demand, we want, and that goes back to society. What am I doing about this? Where are the good stories? How can I hear that story first? So that's why my, my podcast and, you know, life's new normal, or, you know, when I'm on LinkedIn or any type of social media, it's always going to be positive. It's always going to be uplifting because you can get negative anywhere, right. but we're going to write about airplanes landing and tell you the success stories and introduce you to those individuals as well. It's refreshing. You know, it's very refreshing. Yeah. It's self-assuring. Um, you know, it's just one of those things that keeps you afloat thinking the long term. And, and sometimes we get, we get so caught up you know, in, in the in the daily grind and the daily stress and pressure from everything that's going on. And mm -hmm. I think that long-term approach, those long-term goals uh, really do, I guess, lower lower the pressure, uh, yeah. make, shift the environment, if you will. Now, sure. I, I want to go to that moment in your life when you had a hurdle you had mm -hmm. to get over. Tell us about a new beginning. Absolutely. And this is a smoothie my wife made for me. So it's not, it's what, kind not of a drink. Talking, what kind of smoothie are we talking about? It's oh my God, it's got peanut butter in there and some strawberries. And it's my, it's my so type good. of smoothie. Drink one every day. Yeah. Oh my God. So good. Um, 
Yeah, on, on May 17th, 1994, my life changed with one wrong step. I'm the eighth fastest hurdler in the country, top 20 in the world in the 400 meter hurdles. It's one time around the track, over 10 obstacles, spaced 35 meters apart. There's a 45 meter lead into the first hurdle. There's a 40 meter lead off of the last hurdle. And I'm approaching every hurdle, Kevin, at the speed of 8.7 meters per second. And when I ask the, the audience, you know, how fast is that? You know, they'll, they'll say really fast. And I say, absolutely. <laughs> and so it's about 19 miles an hour. And I'm having problems with my steps that day where my right leg is coming up, left leg is coming up. And sometimes in, in life, just as in hurdles, we just want things to stay the same. So I'm, I'm about to try to get to make the, the 1996 Olympic team. USA Track and Field News has picked me as the one to watch for the games, uh, one of kind of three other athletes. So I'm really doing quite well but the wind's blowing hard and I'm having problems with my steps. And as I get in the blocks to go over my last pass before I'm gonna shut it down to conserve my energy for the race the next day, I come out of the blocks to get 21 steps to the first hurdle, that 45 meter lead in, and I'm on. Right leg's leading, get to the second hurdle, 13 steps in between the second, first and second hurdle, right leg leads, bam, I'm still on. And when I come to the third hurdle, I feel that Kansas wind push against me but I push back against that Kansas wind. And I realize I'm going to be short and have to take the hurdle with my left leg. No problem. Off the right leg, I go cross the hurdle with my left leg. And when I land, I hear, and my body sails and twists in the air. And I see my left shin pass in front of my face. And my shoulders hit the ground and bounce to a halt. Uh, I look I look over my body, you know, my waist is okay, my shoulders are okay. When I see my knee, the patella has risen three inches up my femur bone. The, the leg is fully dislocated with the femur bone trying to push out from the, the skin and my foot touching the black surface of the track. And in that one moment, I knew my track and field career was over. Seven days later, because the doctors found that the popliteal artery had been severed uh, and they, couldn't re they had failed to reconstruct it adequately enough, uh, I was left with a choice to either keep the leg and use a walker or a wheelchair for the rest of my life or amputate the leg and use a prosthesis for the rest of my life. Hmm. So I chose door number two. And I took the amputation. And when I woke up, because uh, I was in such tremendous pain, I was in more pain than before the amputation actually happened. And my wife, uh, who was at the local ho uh, hotel, uh, she was managing me and the doctors and nurses told her to go home because the medication I was on would have me sleep the night. And was I, it was in that bed and, I woke, a bed and I woke up at 11 o'clock at night, I began to, you know, uh, to try to cry out because I was in so much pain and I wanted something to knock it out. So I reached over to the morphine drip button that was on the opposite side of the bed but I was too weak to roll over to the press the button. So I thought I would call out to the nurse's station outside the door, but those tubes that were down my throat made the sound too inaudible to get their attention. So there I lay in that bed for the next eight hours with my dangerous thoughts. Who am I now? What's my identity? My wife going to stay around? Is my son still going to see me as his father? Do I still have a job in the military? Can I support my family? I mean, my Olympic dreams are over. And at eight o'clock when Dr. Mullins comes in, he sees my countenance has done a 180 degree shift. And that's when he calls Alice, who's over at the, at the hotel. And at seven o'clock in the morning, she had just found out because we were geographically separated from me being in the military. I was stationed in Germany without a command sponsorship, which meant I couldn't bring my family there. She was working as a certified nurse's aide in West Memphis. And that job appropriately fired her for being gone too long, taking care of me. That's leadership, folks. Gosh. So she comes running over, gets me out of bed, puts, puts me in a wheelchair, wheels me out to an inaccessible playground where I'm parked in that wheelchair, and I'm watching my son and my wife play on the swings, then I couldn't push myself out of that chair. 
It was the first time in my life I ever felt powerless. I felt disabled. And I lost it, started crying uncontrollably, heaving sobs, chest just falling. And I just, I couldn't get out of that chair in this pain. And my wife sees me struggling. She comes running over and says, what is going on? And I began to articulate to her everything that was in my head the night before. And then she spoke the words that stopped my downward spiral and shifted my entire life. She said, you know what, John? We're going to get through this together. It's just our new normal. It's just our new normal. And with those words, she really baselined my entire existence. And as I'm kind of wiping the tears away from my eyes, I see John Jr. He jumps off the swing set, comes running over, says, hey, mom, dad, you see my big jump? You see my big jump? It's five years old. Those legs are just churning. And he jumps in between Alice and myself. And I realize in this moment, he's just validated me as his father. And he's just created his new normal environment. He's bringing oxygen into his environment. Alice is bringing oxygen into my environment, breathing the life that I need in that panicked situation. And that is what we all, I think, need to do as leaders. When we can't, when we were paralyzed, I think everybody went through during the pandemic or through any other trauma that hit us, whether it was George Floyd and Maude Aubrey Brown and Taylor or the heated political election, all of us went through a cerebral amputation. Mm. Here's why I say that, because we all desired to get something back that was no longer there. My leg is gone. I don't get that back. So the point of reckoning that we must get to, the point of, of to, to, in order to move forward, has to move through a point of reckoning. Mm. And the reckoning is, I don't get back what I desire back from a past state. I don't get my leg back. We don't get back pre-COVID. And so that begins the transformation process. And so the new normal mindset with Alice gave me, allowed me to shift the way I was thinking and begin to have a vision of what might be possible. I didn't have the whole vision, but I had glimpses of what might be possible. And it sure, certainly wasn't this staying in a hospital bed and feeling sorry for myself. It was a pathway forward, and I knew my wife would be with me, and my son would be with me on that journey to pull me when I couldn't pull myself, to push me when I couldn't push myself to another one. Who as leaders do we have around us in that small circle that are going to hold us accountable and will never allow us to fail? And, and, and so what is the message then, the quick message hmm. to, to the leaders who are just beginning to recognize this new beginning? And maybe it just finally registered with them. Yeah. What is the message? I like is that word registered. <laughs> no pun intended. You know, is, it, is it collective leadership? What is the message to the team tomorrow? Yeah, I, th I think, you know, uh, I believe that the message where I, where I live I'm in the space with Inspired Communications International, I've kind of flowing this all the way out. The message really is around the individual. Because in teams, and I, I love teams, right? Nothing against the team concept, I, you know, I, I, but inside the team is the individual. And people, um, people can camp out in teams. They can hide. Because if the team is large, maybe they don't see me as much. And I think that freaked a lot of people out when we all started going home, because now my work speaks for itself in this little box that I have to show up in. And I'm freaking out because I can't really hide any longer. And I think that happened with our executives as well. And so we work at our company with people 
who are just about to commit to a major jump that they have to do in their life, or they have just jumped. I don't really work with the ones that are, you know, on the kind of rail on that fear side of the equation and that reckoning moment. To, I, I work folks after the reckoning moment or those that have just made the commitment, what I call the rebirth. Um, because here, here's why, Kevin, because there are so many books that are out there that tell you, tell, you, tell, tell you how to build momentum and how to, you know, encourage you and, 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 and be more empathetic and all these things. What, where books can never go is to the individual's um, performance of what they must commit to themselves. And they, and they only know if they've done it or not. A hurdler that is about to approach a hurdle, we are taught to attack the hurdle. So we have to build momentum from the start through the first seven steps, and then we attack the hurdle. But my coach can coach me all he or she wants to. The, the, the fans can scream all they want to. The announcer can announce my name with the big name and lights all he or she wants to. But that attack of the hurdle, that's on me. No one could do that for me. I have to commit to it. And that scares a lot of people of where of, of that leaving the ground and actually committing to that hurdle. And so we really work with individuals. I can't make you jump. I don't care how I, no one can make you jump. And only you know if you've made the jump. But if you do make it, you've started building some momentum. Mm. If, you, if you don't, if you bail out left or right, you're not living a life of regret. You're living a life of justification, justifying to yourself and to others why you were not courageous enough to make that jump that you, you knew you needed to make. Mm. And so when you get to the other side, and you made that commitment. Now you're beginning to live in phantom sensation and phantom pain. Mm. <laughs> phantom sensation is I have, I feel my leg all the time. It always, there's always a constant reminder that I used to have a leg. Phantom pain is almost reliving the accident or the pain that was there. And for me, it comes in sharp, really big pain. It doesn't last long, but it's a reminder, right? And so in this process, in that rebirth, we're now at a point where we have to unlearn what we have known up to this point. We've got to unlearn it in order to relearn what we need to be more successful to get us to a point from that point of reckoning through the transformation into the point of um, uh, the resolve that I've, I've done the work. So let's put the, bring that back into the hospital you're talking, right? So, so when Alice comes over um, and it takes him all that time to get me out of the bed, now I'm not thinking about the Paralympic Games. What I'm thinking about is how do I stand up on my good foot for 15 seconds? And now for 30 seconds, and now for a minute, how do, I, how do I manipulate this wheelchair to get to a prosthetic appointment? How do I put on this prosthetic leg? How do I wear this? How do I walk between these, these parallel bars and then parallel bars to a four bar walker around the hospital, walker to crutches, crutches to a cane, cane to free walking, free walking to uh, swimming, swimming to running, running to jumping, jumping to a silver medal. That process took six and a half years. Mm. But we want it right now. Mm. Burger King, McDonald's. How do we, how do we, how are we showing up? We want the results, right? We got to have the re results, Bob, Mary, right now. And we haven't even yet learned what this new environment is and how we're bringing oxygen into it. Can we camp out? And I think that's where, to your question, where leaders must be in a moment like this, 
because we haven't done it. We just saw, you know, kind of dating the show, uh, two athletes that struggled with the pandemic at the Olympic Games. One, Simone Biles with the twisties. However, it showed up. She's the GOAT. Everybody agrees with that. But something happens in this moment where she's just out of the, her element. Mm -hmm. And then recently, Michaela Schiffer. Mm -hmm. Just whatever's going on, there, it's, it's little clues to us that we have not all made it through this transition and process. Can you imagine all the things that have been going on with these, the, the athletes of the Olympic and Paralympic yeah. Games yeah. and how many shifts they have to make? Oh, today you can practice. Oh, you know what? Today you can't practice. It's going to be moved to the afternoon. Oh, you can't do it this afternoon. It's got to be tomorrow. Oh, this person, your coaches came down with COVID. They, gotta, they have to coach you from the room now. Can you imagine all the shifts they had to make? Mm -hmm. And so routines are disrupted. And when you're at the very peak, the very highest level, and everything is different, and the snow might be changed from, from one continent to the next, we got global warming going on, snow's different. Uh, it's, it's just mind-blowing that they're even on that snow in the, in the first place, mm -hmm. uh, at, at performing at that highest level. And then some people, it doesn't phase them at all. So we, we see these things that happen, and, and how do we go through it? It takes time. Mm -hmm. it takes time. And how do I, as a leader, mm. and knowing that it takes time, work on my leadership and going, hey, you know what? Sometimes we got to rip off this Band-Aid sometime soon <laughs> from afar. I'm remote now. I can't, I can't be in the same building as that right. employee. I, I don't see him on a daily basis. What can I do knowing that it's going to take a long time? Work yeah. on taking on that fear. You know, I, I think the, the I believe the, the, the first thing is we, you know, I can say I work on the self first and an understanding. Um, I wrote a book. It's called 10 Power Stories to Impact Any Leader. Journal Your Way to Leadership Success. And the reason I wrote this was I came back from Dubai uh, in 2020. Uh, and I was on, on, it was on behalf of the, our United States government, our State Department where I was talking on disability and doing some, some work over there. And when I came back, the then Secretary of State, um, Mike um, Pompeo, asked me to come in and do, he, he brought in all the, the leaders, all our, our charge affairs and, uh, and, and uh, ambassadors into a dinner. And I was their keynote speaker. And he asked me to speak on on leadership and building teams. And this is kind of where I, I went in this, okay. in this conversation. Um, what, what happens is we, I wrote this book because what I saw in that room was they did not have space to think about their story. And stories are critical when we need to communicate a thought to other, our, our, our workers, right? The, the people that are working for us, because they have to believe in us and believe in the mission for us that we have in the company. That's why they come to work there. You know, it's usually, it's usually not a paycheck that they're coming for. It's because they believe in something uh, or it's aligning with who they are. And so they're, they're, they're beholden to a story. And I can't give you that story, right? So my, I had a great boss, Colleen Amstein. She said, always work yourself out of a job. job. So to work myself out of speaking, <laughs> I wrote this book. And it just has 10 of my stories that I, really, I usually don't tell. On, in, a, in a keynote address. And these stories are just my thoughts around what I have. It's a story, it's a story, it's my point. And then I, I, I offer some questions 
for leaders, what were you thinking about when you read this story? They're real short, you know, bathroom reads. And, and so you journal that down. And what triggered you in this moment? And, and, and what would you think about, how would you apply this to your, um, your team? So now when a crisis comes, if you read the book and did the work in the, in the journal, you have 10 of your own stories that you can show up really quickly and say, this is, this is how we get behind this. It's going to be tough. It's going to be a challenge. Remember, when, when I had this thing going on in my life, this is how I got through it. And this is the same thing that we can do. We can show the grit right now. We need to, to come together. We have never left, uh, let a, a person off at Southwest Airlines, and we're never going to do it. That's my promise to you, mm. right? And that rallies the troops. That gets people on board and fired up. And I want to work. You know, I know it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. But this person has just told me a story that is so powerful. And he or she is emoting in that in such a way that I want to help. I want to support. I want to be part of it. Mm. And I think that's where leaders have to go right now mm. to show that more empathetic side. The money is going to be there, right? It's going to, it's going to be there. But right now, we're, we're in a position where restaurants have lost so many people and they're, they have to show, close hours down because they can't get anybody to come to work. Right. Movie theaters, same way, right? Think about any industry. The, the, the whole supply chain has been disrupted. We can't even get products back and forth. So that I think is what we have to think about. And, and it's, it's, not a, it's not an overnight fix. We really have to begin seeing people again as, as we should have in the, in, the, in, the, in the first place, right? And I'm not saying everybody, it's not every company out there. I'm, please don't, don't think I'm generalizing. I'm being, you know, I'm, these are one, the things I'm hearing out there when I'm out there speaking, when I get asked, I always ask the question, why am I in the room? You know, what are the challenges that you have? What are the hurdles? So we can talk about that. And that's what I'm hearing from the clients that I'm working with right now. So that's why that's where it's coming from. Well, uh, yeah, it's in the business setting, but it's it's just a whole global phenomenon right yeah. now. It's yeah. an epidemic, you know, it's just, and I guess the question goes to, I'm just going to ask you again, yeah. you know, when you, when you exit, you know, you're doing all this work, you've written books, you're trying to work yourself out of a job, you're, you're coming on podcasts, you're mobilizing the English language to inspire people and get them out of an old life and have a new norm, give them oxygen. Mm -hmm. So when you exit, what do you want your legacy to be? Oh, I love that question. Um, legacy. So I began shifting the way I think about outcomes for me, how I measure success. Cause I used to do it by speeches or by revenue. I don't, do, I no longer do that. Okay. Um, Cause if I do the other things that will come. So I have to, I have to go granular now on, on going back to my parents. We just started that conversation right, right. out. Full my circle. dad was a Presbyterian minister. Members of, so my, a, a, a great woman uh, in my life, uh, very, 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 uh, very, very short period. Um, I was doing a veteran veterans entrepreneurship program. And for at Oklahoma State University, I got the certification. And um, her name is Pat Enriquez, a little short thing, right? But massive contracts that she's done in DC. And so she's, she's challenging us, all these veterans in the, in the room. She says, what do you think that the, the biggest thing in business is, right? What's, what's your biggest thing that you need to do? What's, what's the thing that you need to focus on? And everybody, we're saying, our, our clients are building our contact lists, our marketing. And she's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> So the, the most important thing in business 
is to ask yourself, how are you going to depose of the business? How are you going to wrap it up? So that's why I love your question. Um, and so I started thinking about, wow, you know, because that, that means that the business has been successful. So you see yourself in, in, a, in a success and we're just going to transition it to the stock market or give bequeaths to my children or how we're going to wrap it up, right? Um, and then I began thinking about what that was for my life. And so going back to my dad, being Presbyterian minister, you know, grew up in the faith and Christianity, uh, I want my God to say to me, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter now into the joy of my rest. So that sets everything up for me because now I want, I, don't, I no longer see me owning anything. I see myself as a steward over what I've been entrusted with. So I want to show up in a way that is empathetic and, and, and helps people in their most challenging times. And so the way I measure things now is not about the bottom line of the, the revenue. I measure things in the standpoint of echo moments. <laughs> so what's an echo moment? So you're, you're a surfer, ever seen a dolphin in the water? Of course. Absolutely, right. So dolphins, they send out sonar, right? right, and, right, right. and the pings that come back to them guide them to where the fish are or where, you know, where the obstacles are or where the predator might be, right? So, so that helps them. It, it gets them to see. Also, with people who have disabilities that are visually impaired or blind, they use echolocation to find out where they are in time and space. They know how big a room is, how small a room is based upon what they can hear. I've actually seen woman, she's like 19 years old now, playing soccer, blind soccer, and she's running around everybody using echolocation by clicking. And she knows where the ball is. She knows where, how big the room is. And it's like she's seeing with her ears. It's amazing to watch. The echoes for me started when I began realizing that people who've never seen me, never heard me speak, maybe saw me on television or something else like that, were having transformational moments. And somehow, remarkably, it was coming back to me. Ripples go out from us, echoes come back this way, broader. Mm. And if we're really paying attention to it, if we attune our ear to it, we begin to hear them. This one woman, hmm. she had a double mastectomy. Um, she was watching television. She had seen my story on a, on a, on a show. Hmm. It gave her the courage to do it. But here's where the echo moment comes in. I'm on a train. I'm riding in Washington Dulles Airport. I'm with my friend, Carrie. Uh, we're going to an amputee camp. And I got my headphones on. I, I'm bailing. I don't want to talk to anybody right now. I got 15 minutes from this gate to this gate. I just want peace for just 15 minutes. Please just give me peace. And this woman starts talking to Carrie. And she starts, you know, she noticed Carrie has these two legs missing. And she starts talking about these, um, you know, what, what's been going on. And then she starts saying my story. Yeah, this guy came on television and, you know, he really encouraged me. And I began thinking about him all the time. He, he was a world-class athlete. He lost a leg and went on to win the, win the silver medal in the long jump and, and the Paralympic Games. And Carrie's like, that's him. Right? And she's like, no way. And so she gets all over something talking. And I'm still chippy. Right. I'm still right. <laughs> I'm like, eh, you know, whatever. You don't even know Paralympics. Um, so anyway, we get off the train, take a picture. She gives, I give her my card. And I'm off. Two years later, I'm walking down the street. A woman comes up. Uh, I get a call on my phone. I never answer a, a block number or something. So it's her. Right. I pick it up, sir. And she begins to tell me the story that she was in this hospital room um, and she was considering how she would would go through this uh, this this major life challenge in her, in her life. And she decided because of my story to, to do it. 
and she held on to that the entire time. The other person who was in the bed next to her did not. Unfortunately, she passed away about a year later, and this woman stayed alive. And she said on the phone to me that day, I'm alive because of you. When you hear something like that, mm. now I'm going back to that train and thinking about how chippy I was on that, that uh, train. And I was floored, bawling again like I was on that hospital, on the, outside the hospital. Because how dare I? In the one moment where this person is trying to pour life into me, I'm blocking it. How dare I block that? Mm. Can we allow people in to the space? I'm not saying everybody has to do that, but this is an echo moment that needs to be paid attention to. Mm. That's coming back, that someone's trying to share, and they don't happen all the time. But there are course correctors that are saying you're on the right path or you need to get back on track. John, you're a genius. And you know why I'm saying that? Is because this is the first time it's ever hit me that you know what? Maybe my CEO needs some affirmations right now. Mm. Maybe my CEO is the lonely one. Maybe my CEO or founder constantly hears things that are going wrong in the company and never hears something that's going mm. right. That echo is freaking amazing. Is phenomenal. And that's the first time I've heard that on this show. John, it's been a pleasure having you on the Real Leaders Podcast. Let's bring this home. What is yep. your definition of a real leader? Yeah, I think, you know, that's great. I, you know, I think a real leader is the one that is someone that you don't even realize is there. Because they are allowing the, the pieces that are in place to run. What happened during the pandemic I saw the first thing, people were trying to protect the bottom line. And when you protect the bottom line, you start getting rid of folks. The very folks that you said were crucial to the organization to be successful. How do we do and allow people, even though we're going through a traumatic time, and I know there has to be layoffs, don't get me wrong, I understand if that's, but that should be a last resort, just like war, it should be a last resort. How are we gonna to try to fix it? And it's hard work, right? Uh, we could go back, go back to hard. Some people, it was easy. Some people, it was easier for uh, easy hard. And some of it was hard, hard. Some people, it was triple hard. And when we think about that um, in, in the work that had to be done, a lot of times we heard in the environment, um, we're living in, we're living, Kevin, we're living in such uncertain times. <laughs> and to which I shot back, right? We're talking about in, in leadership, conventional wisdom for the, the buck, the conventional wisdom. When did we ever have certainty? Mm, right. We never had it. We only had um, rituals that were in place that led us to a rhythm that elevated us to a rise that created the desired results that we were looking for in our lives. And when that got disrupted, environment shifted, what we were left with. The reason people did not like the term the new normal and still don't like the term the new normal is because it's, it's a powerless term in their life. Buck the, conventional, buck the conventional wisdom. We heard it, the powerless was in leadership. We heard, I just want things to get back to normal. Or I guess this is just our new normal. I can't go back to a past state. And, I, and, I, and, and, and then the second one is like, I can do nothing about the state that I'm, curr I'm currently in. <laughs> so what does new mean? New means no prior point of reference. How many of us have lived through a pandemic before? So if, if we haven't lived through a pandemic, why are we trying to use old things, old systems 
to put into the new environment that we're in to get a different result. That's the definition of insanity. And then the normal is the everyday typical occurrence of a thought or an action. Like we said, what are the rituals in place to lead us to a rhythm, to elevate us to a rise, to create the desired results that we're looking for? So the new normal is not a destination at all, as we, the Olympic and Paralympic Games show us. Sidious, altius, fortius, swifter, higher, stronger. Those words are not written in the superlative of the word. It's not swiftest, highest, or strongest. Those words are written with an ER stem ending, that we can be the swiftest today and swifter tomorrow. Jump the highest today, jump higher tomorrow. Lift the heaviest weight today, lift heavier weight tomorrow. Have the most sales today, have more sales tomorrow, right? So with the best is better. And that's where we have to, to live. If Olympians and Paralympians are training four years from the day, the way they're training today, they've already lost the gold medal. How do we put us in the mindset of the current situation and see a mindset of where we desire to be and then execute against that, knowing that's the right direction to go? Or maybe it's not, right? But we gotta go, that's, it's definitely that's a way better than that way over there, right? Mm. So I know, I know I can move in that direction. So thanks. That's a great question. For John Register, I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there, embrace the new norm, and always, folks, keep it real. Thanks, John. Thank you. Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's groundbreaking book, In This Together, landed on bookstore shelves with a powerful message. When we work together, we can do absolutely anything. Guidance from 40 women leaders with specific strategies to help women advance their careers makes In This Together even more relevant today, especially with the pandemic's impact on women in the workforce. Take your career to the next level with Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's In This Together, now available on audiobook. Download your copy today.